Welcome to the 1662 Proppers Podcast. My name is Stephen Wedgworth. I am the rector of Christ Church in South Bend, Indiana. And I'm joined by my friend and co-host Clayton Hutchins. He is the vicar of Holy Cross Anglican Church uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Clayton, it's good to be with you today. It's good to be with you, Stephen, as well. Um, Yes. So for this podcast, we had been doing recordings and episodes, but I think we may have gotten, or I may have gotten ahead of myself, and I wanted to have a big uh, cache of episodes and to release them all at once. And what I didn't understand is then that just makes it so much harder. So I have all this data, all this work to do and haven't done it. And so we thought, you know, we'd really like to start getting the episodes out there. So we're going to treat this episode uh, as a debut episode. So um, apologies if that gets awkward, but hopefully you'll enjoy it. And uh, we're going to be starting with the second half of the Book of Common Prayer lectionary year. Uh, For those who may not know, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer has its own lectionary. It's not like the more modern books. In fact, uh, probably, Clayton, you can give me your thoughts too, probably um, until the international edition of the 1662 was put out a a year or two ago, um, probably none of the BCPs that you would easily buy would have this lectionary. They all either use a revised common lectionary or a lectionary that was put out in the 20th century. Uh, and so the the one-year older Western lectionary that's in the 1662 was probably not accessible uh, and not in many uh, of the Anglican books that anyone would have had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my own experience. Um I'm like Stephen. I'm a newer arrival to Anglicanism, was Presbyterian before, but had been using prayer books before. And <clears throat> my entry point was actually the 2019. I started using that initially, but then the 1662 released, and I started using that instead. And I was just really drawn to the different lectionary. Um, but yeah, I think before that point, um, it was really just you know 1928, 1979, and then more recently the 2019. So I think those are kind of the major ones in America know that even if you buy a 1662 prayer book, say from an English publisher, um, if it's a if it's a newer printing, it will not have the old lectionary. It will have um, a lectionary that was um, put out in the 60s, 1961, I believe, um, and it's got shorter selections and it just it, it operates on a different logic. So you really, uh, probably the international edition is the easiest way to get the lectionary we are using. But this would have been the lectionary that was in use in uh, the 17th century um, and even before that. And it's Eucharistic propers, the communion service propers. Those go back, I think, to, you know, as late or sorry, as early as the 8th, 7th century, maybe even uh, some of those even earlier. So each week as I'm looking at the text, I can do a cross-reference. You know, what was Martin Luther preaching on this day? Usually it's the same text. Uh, John Chrysostom, usually it's the same text, at least with the gospel and epistle readings. So there's definitely some history here, um, and it's worth recovering uh, the full lectionary in the BCP. So a couple of words to explain how the BCP lectionaries work. You've really got um, you've got three kinds of lectionaries, uh, maybe even four, depending on how you want to cut it. There's the daily office lectionaries. Those are always going to be used for morning prayer, evening prayer. They're designed to be used every day. And so your first lesson is usually a full chapter of the Old Testament. Second lesson is a full chapter of the New Testament. And if you do this consistently, you'll get through the the bulk of the Old Testament. Not not every single book and passage is covered, but most of the Old Testament, you'll complete it in a year. And you'll complete most of the New Testament. Again, some exceptions. They don't tackle Revelation. But you'll cover most of the New Testament uh, three times in a year. Um, Then, additionally, with the morning and evening prayer usage, you would be doing the Psalter. Uh, and you do that once a month. So, so that's one lectionary approach, the daily office and the Psalter. And then you have your communion lectionaries, and these are what are typically used on Sundays, other holy days. 
and they're giving you epistle and gospel readings, and those pair up with the collect of the day. Uh, those are going to match your uh, church calendar year, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, and so forth. Uh, the daily offices are just really um, following January through December. They're just moving through the Bible book by book. The Holy Communion propers are doing that church calendar liturgy. They're following the uh, life of Christ and then the life of the church as embodied by the Spirit. And then you can add on to that, and this was done by Archbishop uh, Parker, the Sunday first lessons. So if you're doing morning prayer and communion or some combination of those on Sundays, your first lesson would have a special proper and these typically move through the Old Testament, uh, book by book. Uh, the one twist is that in Advent uh, and into Christmas and Epiphany, you're reading Isaiah. So they're starting this Old Testament survey with Isaiah. Christological prophecies also gives you a sort of redemptive historical framework to begin your Old Testament reading. Then it goes Genesis, Exodus, so forth through uh, through the church year. Um it can't do every single verse because you're only doing this on Sunday, so it's having to choose particular passages. And part of what we want to do in this podcast is explain why certain passages were chosen, some of the logic here, because it may not be automatically obvious. Uh, and Clayton, would you agree that this has been kind of an ongoing project between the two of us, um, kind of learning week by week? Oh, that's why this choice was made. Exactly, yeah. It's rarely been <clears throat> a, uh, uh, a kind of direct reference to where the New Testament passage might you know, refer to an Old Testament event, and then the Old Testament reading ends up being that event. It's very rarely that. Um, so th the connections are still there. Um, I think we've really come to see that, but it, they're the source of connection which... Um, you may not notice it first, um, and that require kind of reflection upon to see. But once you see it, um, you see it. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of modern lectionaries, they are probably operating on more of a didactic, uh, specific teaching approach where uh, pretty much each week they want to draw the connections to each other um, kind of as a singular um, singular week-by-week -week plan, um, and the idea is really they want to find Old Testament prophecies or parallels to the, the New Testament material, um, and it, it's usually working in that kind of a way, and, and sometimes it doesn't work that well, and people say, oh, this was a stretch, you know, they were looking for something, um, but but usually that's the kind of idea. They're trying to make it all connect in a, a more direct way. With a 1662 lectionary, uh, the propers, you're really being asked to make a year-long commitment. <laughs> um, hang with it. You'll start to see how things work. Um, and it requires you to be with it week in and week out to really understand it. And the first lessons do um, have some point of connection with the New Testament selections. Almost always there's a connection there. Uh, you may have to, to dig to see it, but it's usually there. But the first lessons are also taking you on a tour of the Old Testament over the course of the whole year. So you need that as well. And also, they're usually making some comment on the theme of the season. So if you're in Advent, there's, uh, there's some reference to coming of the Messiah, uh, judgment of God as you're moving into Christmas, uh, more focus on the, the promise of Christ and the, uh, as the, the coming Savior uh, into Epiphany, so forth. And then as you move into Lent, uh, is a shift. And I heard one pastor say it moves from light to darkness. So uh, in the Old Testament, you, you know, you're starting off on Isaiah, the prophecies of the Christ. And in the Jessima season, they're getting you ready for the shift. So you're starting in Genesis with creation, but then you're moving into the history of sin and pain and fall 
and all through the, um, the, the, the latter jessimas and into the Lenten season, you're getting not necessarily the highlights, but, but almost the lowlights, a lot of really tough stories, human uh, sin and ugliness, violence, uh, all sorts of stuff jumping out there. And then as it moves closer to Easter, you get into the Exodus narrative with the plagues and then Easter uh, kind of matching with Passover and the Red Sea deliverance. So you can see the connection there very clearly. Uh, but now, after Easter and after uh, Pentecost or Whit Sunday, we move into the great second half of the year. This is where modern lectionaries usually use different language. Um, readers and listeners might be uh, expecting ordinary time or uh, Pentecost season. Those are terms that are used. But the 1662 calls it Trinity season. And so the two halves of the church year really are the incarnation cycle, coming of Christ, birth of Christ, suffering and death of Christ, and then the Trinity season. So all of God for the Christian starts off on Trinity Sunday, which was last week, mostly about contemplating the Trinity. And now this week, first week after Trinity, it's the life of the Christian as embodied by the Spirit, how they're supposed to live and how they're supposed to honor God and Christ now uh, in this life. That's the idea. And so the, the, the gospel and epistles will typically have uh, moral lessons. The collects will make that very clear. This is a great application season. And the first lessons, well, we'll talk about it. <laughs> They're still trying to get us through the Old Testament, so they've got to survey books. But the selections can be a little puzzling. Why this and not that? Uh, and it's also, I think we'll see, it's placing us, the Christian church now, in the life of Israel. So instead of just focusing on prophecies of Jesus and the work of Christ for us, uh, or us as sort of negative examples that are being redeemed by Christ, it's also now positioning us as a parallel or new Israel, the covenant community of God, uh, living through analogous situations. And so we're going to start off Trinity season with Joshua. Life in the land, the life of the Christian following Christ, how to, uh, to be faithful uh, in that way. Yeah, and I think that if we're tracking with the biblical story so far, we've seen all these correspondences already. Um, you know, you mentioned getting toward Easter. There's um, the uh, first lessons on Easter being Exodus 12, Exodus 14, the Passover, and the crossing of the Red Sea. So we're, we're being um, identified with the people of Israel, you know, just like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, um, that our fathers all passed through the sea. Um, and so that's the sort of thing the BCP is doing. <clears throat> and yeah, once you make this turn and you get past all these major, you know, grand events of, um, you know, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, the resurrection, um, Ascension, Pentecost, Trinity Sunday, it's like um, the grand crescendo, you know, to it all um, when it comes to rehearsing God's great saving acts in Christ. And then it's like you enter into the, okay, now what? side and you start with yeah joshua and it's like well uh it, it it's the conquest of the land and um I, I i think that's a good place to to start we've been redeemed and we've been called now to live in light of that and and to seek to be faithful uh to christ so the way we'll do these episodes we'll begin with the collect of the day that really shows you the thematic emphasis that they're going for. Often that's the easiest way to see uh, the various connections and what, uh, what the organizers were doing by uh, trying to unite these texts. Um, and usually at least one of the readings will be a, a very direct connection to the collect of the day, and then the others will kind of shore up and complement it. So I will... Um, I will read it, and then we'll, we'll talk about anything that leaps out. Then we'll move into the scripture passages. First Sunday after Trinity. 
O God, the strength of all those who put their trust in thee. Mercifully accept our prayers, and because through the weakness of our mortal nature we can do no good thing without thee, grant us the help of thy grace, that in keeping of thy commandments we may please thee, both in will and deed, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so Clayton, what do you see in this collect? What's, uh, if you're you're getting ready for Sunday, what, what do you say? Ah, oh, this is the theme. This is the big idea. Well, <clears throat> you know, just to start off, as I'm approaching the collect and, and the readings for this Sunday, I'm thinking about Trinity Tide, and I'm thinking about a potential you know, critique that might be lodged against it, which is, um, isn't this a bit moralistic uh, to spend half of the church year about how we should live? And, um, you know, isn't that a, a kind of moralistic thing to do? Isn't that bad? Um, shouldn't we just preach the gospel? Um, but uh, I, I, I don't think it's moralistic Um in the slightest. Much of the Bible and much of the New Testament is focused on just this, calling us to live out lives of faith as those whom the Lord has redeemed. Um, you'll notice as well that when Jesus and the apostles do this, it's with, with reference constantly back to the preceding grace and favor of God that already rests upon the people and serves as the impetus for um, our good works and our good actions and lives of faith and repentance. So, I think the first Sunday in Trinity gets us off on a really good foot. Um, this collect, I think, really sets the tone well and kind of heads off some of those potential critiques. Um, you know, based on this collect, who is God? Our strength. The one who mercifully accepts our prayers. The one who gives us the help of his grace and is pleased in our keeping of his commandments by his help. Uh, who are we? Yeah. We are weak, mortal we can do no good thing without his grace. And we simply put our trust in him, find our strength in him alone, and we can uh, please him uh, when we, uh, by his gracious help, keep his commandments and will indeed. So um, I kind of see this collect um, accentuating um, our total you know, need and insufficiency, but the uh, grace, the strength, uh, the help of God uh, that goes before us. Yeah, no, that's good. And that really shows you how this is setting you up for the rest of the season. This is, um, okay, we're going to be doing Christian life, Christian application. So before we do that, let's get our, our prior conceptions straightened out. Yes, we're keeping commandments. That's going to happen. But we couldn't do that in our own nature. It's weak, it's sinful, we need God's help, absolutely. So we trust him uh, and look to him, absolutely, very good. Um, and I think that helps then highlight these passages that are used. The epistle reading, 1 John chapter 4, love. So if we're going to keep the commandments and we're going to go out there and be good Christians, well, you've got to start with love. And this is going to give us also a strong Christological basis. We're loving God because he's shown himself to us in Christ. Uh, also, the fact that Christ loved us. So we have to then love to be like Christ. Um, love is going to cast out the fear. So that idea of kind of moralism to just work hard, grin, grit and bear it. Um, and it's also got that statement that Christ is a propitiation of our sins. So um, application uh, of the Christian life is not in competition with the message of, quote unquote, preach the gospel. Um, but the work of Christ and how he saves us is, is foundational for are keeping the gospel. We love because he first loved us. That's said you know, yes. explicitly here. So, um, yeah, and this focus on love is one we've seen before. I think you see it at the yes. start of kind of major segments of the church year. Um, so back in Advent 1, 
The epistle, Romans 13, reminds us the law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Queen Quagesima, I don't know if I s remember how to say that correctly, but the Sunday before Lent. Queen Quagesima. <laughs> uh, uh, the epistle is 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, preparing us for Lent by reminding us that the greatest spiritual gift is the gift of love. And um, and so now we're beginning Trinity Tide. So again, there's this focus on, well, love is the fulfillment of, of the law. Love is what we are called to. But this time, as you said, I think there's a stronger connection drawn to the preceding love and grace of God, um, which is really good to highlight, I think. And I think this passage really serves as a beautiful hinge uh, from the first half of the church year, the incarnation cycle, to the second half of the church year, the, the Trinity cycle. Um, I think especially verses 13 to 16, just thinking about, again, where we just were in the church year up to this point. But just to read, um, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. It's almost like we could just say verses 13 through 16 there um, as just kind of summing up what we've seen already in the church year, right? Um, yes. You know, Pentecost, um, incarnation, um, even kind of whoever confesses Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him. That, you know, takes us back. You know, we all said the Athanasian Creed last Sunday, right? Absolutely. Trinity. Um, yeah, I think this uh, epistle is just very well chosen as that kind of hinge. And this is, it's picking up and carrying on themes that were also mentioned um, back around Ascension uh, and then with with the giving of the Spirit. Uh, several of the readings uh, out of the Gospels were Christ saying, if you love me, you know, keep my commandments. Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit will come, and He'll He'll dwell in you, and you'll you'll keep my commandments, or, or you'll love others. Um, that's part of what the Spirit is going to allow us to do. And so now, the life of the church going forward, empowered by the Spirit, is keeping the commandments and loving, and uh, love then having a form and a directionality by the commandments. That's right. Now, the gospel reading here, Luke 16, 19-31, this is the picture of uh, Lazarus, the, the rich man uh, in, in hell or in uh, Hades, and Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. Uh, sometimes this is called Lazarus and the Dives. It's an interesting story. A um, lot of commentary on this over the years. Is this uh, a literal vision? You know, is this actually a picture of the afterlife? Or is this just a parable? I lean more towards, a, you know, parabolic, but um, uh, it's, it's meant to teach us a lesson. But there's still a lot to ponder here. And you know, what is Abraham's bosom? <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of arguments about that. But for the Trinity theme, I kind of find it interesting, and I think we'll see this reflected in the first lessons as well. This is a, this is a death passage. You know, it's a passage that makes us think about our end. So, so if we're going to live the Christian life, we're going to love, we're going to try to do good, keeping the commandments, but we're also thinking about our death. <laughs> you know, memento mori, right? Um, remember that you're going to die. Uh, everything in our Christian life of application, we need to have eschatology. We need to have our, our final destiny held before us. And here we have two, two possibilities. <laughs> we have a bad one and a good one. Um, and we also have the reminder that just because you have a good life, rich man, rewarded in this life, it doesn't mean that you are going to be saved. And just because you have a poor life, a life of suffering and affliction, it doesn't mean God is against you. Indeed, you could be destined for eternal bliss. You could be a great holy person, a saint, 
Uh, and so Lazarus here is is really an example of that category, the the beggar who lived his life very poor and afflicted, but ends up having great reward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, I was at first a bit surprised <laughs> to find this as the gospel uh, assigned after, you know, the collect, the epistle. I got to the gospel. I was expecting kind of another kind of comforting text. Um, but, uh, yeah, as you said, it's it's the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus. Um, and I wonder if there's, if there's something to be said about um, <clears throat> the the contrast between the rich man and Lazarus, like just looking at these two characters, um, you know, the rich man clothed in purple, fine linen, feasts sumptuously every day. And at his feet, there's a poor man laid who's covered with sores and um, desires to be fed with just the table scraps. Um, and, you know, I don't know if this is a stretch or not, but but just to say maybe there's a kind of indictment of the rich man, like maybe he wasn't caring for the poor around him as he was meant to. Um, and if so, I saw a potential connection there with a, a kind of lack of love. Um, you know, I think the rich man does kind of have a callous heart because he does end up, you know, asking Abraham to send Lazarus um, even then to go back and, you know, continue, you know, be his servant and, and, and go do things for him. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Abraham rather. Yeah, sorry. He asked Abraham that. And then Abraham says, well, you received your good things in the life and he received his bad. It's like, yeah, I wonder if there is an indictment of the rich man, and so we could connect it to the epistle and, and the collect in terms of the love not being shown. Um, next Sunday's epistle will be, Whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Uh, which is also oh, yeah. the offertory sentences. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, I think everything you said is true. I just wonder if there's also this component of, of a kind of uh, implicit lack of love um, you know, being shown. Um. Absolutely, I like that connecting it to the second second Sunday after Trinity. It shows you how again the lectionary it's asking you to stick with it, and so we're having a, the picture of the rich man who shut his heart. Um, he hated his brother who he could see, um, and, and then you know next week we're going to have that more explicit warning about not shutting up your heart, and. Um, also, I think the ending of this gospel reading is very um, kind of provocative in a in a theological sense because um, it has him saying uh, it has Abraham saying to the rich man um, they should listen to Moses and the prophets. So you know, listen to the Old Testament would have enough to tell you what you need to know, um, and if they will not hear them. Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So we just finished this great, you know, Easter resurrection season. We've had Pentecost. We've had Trinity Sunday. So all of that kind of high miraculous stuff. And then we've got this warning. We'll, we'll just, uh, you know, just witnessing that sort of thing without really connecting it to the Word of God, hearing God's moral, uh, ethical imperative to you, that that won't save you. <laughs> uh, just being kind of stricken by the impressiveness of miracles won't do it. Uh, but you've got to connect it to that constant voice that God has been sounding over all of history through his people. Yeah, I I, I think that's a good um, theme to note. I noticed that as well. I see a focus on the word as the necessary appointed means of um, our uh, conversion and, you know, sanctification. Um, you know, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Uh, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Um, especially hearing this after Easter season. Um, <laughs> it's just right. interesting. It's like, yeah, what you need is it's just the word. Like that's what you need is 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 the word of Moses, the prophets of Christ, and his apostles. And don't think you need something extra. Like don't think you need something additional, and then and then that would actually be enough. It's like no, 
this is enough, this is the appointed means, and if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, right? The the venite, um, yes. as the venite reminds us. That's right. And so needing that, um, you know, the ministry of the word, that office of scripture to, to fill out and complete these um, sort of gospel highlights. Uh, so that then takes us to the first lessons. Um, you have a morning first lesson and an evening first lesson. So again, if you're you're new to the 1662 way of doing things, um, the expectation was that even on Sundays, you're having morning prayer. And so people would come to morning prayer. Um, then perhaps you'd have communion, though in some cases that might have been reversed. Maybe you did communion uh, for some reason first and then morning prayer afterwards. So many churches do that. And then you come back uh, in the afternoon or evening for evening prayer. And the first lessons are proper lessons. They are chosen for this day, being Sunday, or uh, other. occasionally they do it for other holy days. Um, so this is not the daily office lectionary. This is a, this is a red-letter day choice. And they're meant to connect with, with the themes that we've been talking about in some way. Um, for the first half of the cycle, the Trinity, the incarnation cycle, the the Old Testament lessons are Isaiah and then the books of Moses. So you know, half of your year, um, at least thematically, is just those books, and then the second half of the year is everything else. <laughs> so you've got to move quickly to get through the whole Old Testament in what's remaining. But it's also interesting to me what gets chosen and doesn't get chosen. You know, yes, you're hitting highlights, you're summarizing these books, but here this week we're doing Joshua. It's going to be our only Joshua week. <laughs> and um, you don't get the Battle of Jericho. You know, that, that's probably the most famous Joshua narrative. They don't choose that one. You don't get Rahab and the spies. They don't choose that one. They choose Joshua 10 and Joshua 23. Yes, Exactly. Yeah, it's for me and my house. Um, it's not that one. So, so the choices were were done for a reason, and maybe not immediately obvious to us. We have to dig in. Uh, also, it would be a mistake. We need to give this caveat. It'd be a mistake to try to say, okay, Josh. They thought the the lectionary compilers thought, you know, Joshua ten was talking about. Um, the the New Testament selections, <laughs> you know, you, you try to make a connection between Joshua ten, rich man and Lazarus, or Joshua ten and First John. Um, that's probably not going to work. You're probably going to be um, stretching things, doing violence to the biblical text. Instead, we want to say they chose this as part of a coherent thematic conversation. You know, they're painting this picture that's going to be stable and continue throughout the course of the year, making um, sort of gradual statements of doctrine and ethics. And these Joshua selections are pieces of that that are going to fill out the bigger picture. And so we should look for a common thematic teaching or picture, or maybe also we should see how this is bridging us from where we have been with Passover and Pentecost and, uh, and moving us into this idea of Christian living and keeping the commandments. So I think that's kind of what we should have in mind when we try to make sense of these selections. Yeah, it's like you said earlier, there's the three tiers um or the three levels at which these first lessons can work. One is the, um, you know, it's just going chronologically through, so that's the reasoning. Um, but the second one would be specific connections with the other readings, the Collect Epistle Gospel. And then the third would be where it falls in the church year. Um, and so this is a Sunday where I think it's not as strong on the connections to the Epistle Gospel front, but it, uh, I, I, I do think there's things to notice on the... Um, well, obviously the first one's always there, but the third level, the 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 thematic connections with the the, the place of this Sunday in the church year, I think there will be some things to see. Yes. So Joshua 10, this is a conquest chapter. Uh, you've got the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zidek, which 
I mean, that's fascinating to me, you know, Lord of, of Righteousness, basically, uh, makes me think of Melchizedek, you know, he was a king in Genesis, um, but uh, this is the king of Jerusalem, he uh, hears about Joshua, and then you've got um, other kings, king of um, Hebron, you've got king of Jarmuth, king of Lachish, king of Eglon, and they're all um, going to war against Gibeon because Gibeon has made peace with Joshua. So it's kind of a big, all of the kings of the nations are banding together to go to war against um, Israel and its allies. And then you've got all of this battle, um, the Lord fighting for Israel, and there's a great slaughter. Uh, the people are leaving. Um, then you get the sun standing still, so that's pretty famous. Um, uh, the sun stands still, but I, I wonder how many of us, when we encounter the sun standing still story, read all of Joshua 10, or did we just read, you know, a little children's version? Um, so the sun stands still so that then there's more time for God to carry out the battle <laughs> so that they can defeat all of the enemies. And then it moves into the five kings hiding in the cave, Joshua putting a stone over in front of the cave. So, you know, we just did an Easter uh, season. That's going to ring some bells, stone and a cave. Uh, <laughs> and then they open it up. Guards, yeah. <laughs> Um, open it up, get the men out, uh, hang them on trees, smite them, kill them. Uh, a lot of destruction in this chapter. And so uh, if you're reading it, 43 verses, um, and it's a lengthy reading for a corporate worship service, uh, might be jarring for people that aren't used to hearing all of this. Um, but this is the first lesson selection. So something here is a counterpoint to keeping the commandments of God and loving one another. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> and, and something here is uh, similar or analogous to the Christian church uh, living its life now, um, following after its leader and embodying his teachings. Yeah, as you were describing all the kings, you know, uh, it says, you know, Adonai Zedek heard how Joshua captured Ai um, and how the inhabitants of Gideon, or sorry, Gibeon made peace with Israel. He feared greatly and, you know, got his 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 friends together, you know, uh, uh, other kings in the area and said, let's go to war. And I just thought, you know, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? <laughs> uh, right. Uh, a, a kind of appropriate theme at the end of, you know, Easter tide and this kind of time of, of celebration, there's that theme of, you know, some may not like to hear all this story of, of victory and good news and may oppose, you know, Jesus. Um, and that's something the early church um, or, you know, the apost uh, the apostolic church in the book of Acts ends up quoting that psalm uh, to kind of encourage them in the midst of their own opposition that they soon encounter. So, you know, maybe on the other side of that of that resurrection, that victory, there's going to be some opposition um, still, yeah. but it is ultimately going to prove vain. The Lord is with us. We should not fear. Um, and, you know, he has, he has promised Christ, the nations, he has promised um, us the land, you know, he's, he's told us to go make disciples, you know, don't be afraid. Um, you know, they look bigger or mightier, you know, to not fear. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and through me, you will, conquer um obviously not we don't war against flesh and blood we're not talking about that but uh spiritually as the gospel goes forth so um, yeah <clears throat> well i definitely think yeah this this puts us in the mindset that the christian life of holiness it's a it's a war um and we're carrying out the conquest now, um, we don't do it the way Joshua did it <laughs> we're not taking up a sword and slaughtering people like this why not? That's the question. Why not? Well, the work of Christ. <laughs> he was the one hung on the tree. He was the one put into the tomb uh, for us. And so we don't war that way, but we do go out in war. And so with that in mind, thinking of that first John reading, we're carrying out our war, but through love. 
You know, we're loving one another, keeping the commandment out of love for the good of our neighbor. That's a Christian transformation of the conquest. So, you know, taking battle, um, taking the word, which is our sword, <laughs> um, and going out and fighting, but fighting like Jesus. So we do have a sort of a Christological reinterpretation or recapitulation of what the conquest is. Um, and maybe we can even say we conquer through laying down our lives like Jesus did, um, being uh, living sacrifices, loving others. That's actually how God's going to choose to win the battle. Yeah. Well, that's how it describes the... Saints from Revelation, isn't it? Uh, you know, they have conquered because they love not their lives even unto death. Um, so, Very good. Yeah, but you already mentioned this, but just as I was reading this, I was just really struck, again, reading kind of with Eastertide eyes and, you know, how the first half of the church year ended. Um, yeah, just coming across <clears throat> verses, um, where is it? It, it? It's after the sun stands still, so it's like verses 16 through 27 um i i thought it was just remarkable that you know intriguingly the five kings take refuge in a cave and joshua commands them to roll a large stone over the mouth of the cave and set guards uh so that they can go on and you know um conquer more and but but then they come back they roll the stone away take them out put them to death and hang them on five trees and then uh it says, uh, until the time of the going down of the sun, uh, and at that time, they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Um, it's kind of like a anti-Easter, or it, 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 it's almost like Good Friday and Easter, but, you know, with a twist. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wonder if there's something to be said there just about how Jesus undergoes a similar looking kind of humiliating defeat but in jesus's case um he conquers right the stone does not stay sealed it does not remain there to this day right he has come forth he has conquered what looked like judgment and defeat ended up being victory uh through him i don't know there's a lot coming together there a lot of resonances with the gospels i i don't think i'm stretching anything i think there's <laughs> there's too much coming together on one place to not call attention yeah. to that no, I think that's right. And until you and I, we talked about this before we started recording. I mean, I, I never read this chapter thinking like that. Um, and, and this is kind of an interesting lesson about symbolism and typology. I mean, I don't think that necessarily Joshua is trying to foreshadow or tell us about the cross and the resurrection necessarily. But but I do think that the, the BCP compilers they saw, you know, an interesting connection here, and they chose to put it at this time of year when all of those things are on our mind, because then it, it just illuminates these Christian themes. Um, but hey, maybe maybe it was even there in a kind of mosaic and Joshua authorial prophetic intent. I, I'd have to um, I'd have to give that more thought. <laughs> but um, so. Certainly, the BCP has now got me looking at it that way and thinking about it, which is very interesting. You know, I think we could ask that question. I mean, in some sense, that's a broader interpretive question. But, you know, when Deuteronomy said, curses everyone who hangs on a tree, you know, that gets applied to Jesus, but it's not as though Moses originally wrote that thinking of Jesus. It's like he was just writing some law about how people are cursed if they're on a tree at night. You know, so I don't know if we need to intend to make a claim that, that there was a, you know, on the part of Joshua writing this was thinking, oh yeah, this will happen to the Messiah. But rather when the Messiah comes, uh, God providentially orchestrates it to use a lot of similar, you know, uh, events <laughs> to what happens here. So I think that itself kind of right. justifies seeing a connection, but maybe that's a yeah. broader conversation. But <laughs> I definitely think when we read Joshua 10, and we're then making parallels to Christian sanctification, the, the law of love, where we're kind of inverting some of this stuff, then it really connects to the collect, right? God is our strength. We put our trust in him, 
Um, he he's the one who gives us help so that we can then have uh, success and please him. Uh, you know, we can be those victorious uh, Joshua Israelites when we trust God and let him uh, empower us. Significantly, you just made me think of how there is a passage in the New Testament that explicitly applies uh, a charge to Joshua to the people of God. It's in Hebrews 13 right? Um, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, which is what he says to Joshua, and which Joshua continually repeats to the people to kind of encourage them. Um, So, yeah, the same God, the God of the conquest, is with us, um, and, and he will provide, he will give us the strength we need. So, yeah. Yeah. And this brings us to the, the first lesson for Evensong, Joshua 23. So why this one? You know, we jumped over like the whole book. There's so many other things you might want to talk about in Joshua. Now it's basically Joshua's farewell address. He's dying. So we're jumping to the end of the book. So maybe that's a theme. Uh, that's a logic to it. You know, the first selection is kind of conquest and battle, giving you the main idea of what the book's about. And now we're here going to wrap it up with his death. Okay, we're, we're at the end. Um, his farewell address is is very similar to Moses' farewell address. He tells the people, if you keep all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, and you turn not aside to the right or the left, then... God will be with you. You'll have victory. You'll you'll defeat your enemies and possess the land. Um, but if you don't, if you forsake God's law, harden your heart, um, then then you're you're going to have judgment. If you go after other gods, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that He has given you. So. How to continue to have success, how to to live in the land, well, keep God's law, listen and obey, following his covenant. And so this is similar to the the epistle reading, keep my commandments if you love me. Um, It's also similar to that gospel reading, right? (laughs) The rich man uh, had what he needed. He had Moses, but he didn't listen. Um, And so now as he's dying, uh, he's not having a good death. He's not having this this translation into uh, victory and salvation. But because he didn't listen, uh, then he's now facing wrath. He's facing the wrath of God. Um, And then that's for us as Christians. Uh, what should we do to possess the land, to inherit it, to keep it? Uh, we should walk in the ways God has given us. Um, it doesn't mean that that's how you get saved. Uh, we've learned that through uh, the first half of the church year and repeated again and again throughout all of the other teachings. But it is how you continue to have a happy life. Um, again, not one-to-one. You might look like Lazarus in much of it. Um, but you you will still have God's favor uh, if you keep His word. Yeah. So, a similar kind of call for obedience, and I think Israel's in a unique spot at this time because they're in the land. They've just been given all these victories, glorious victories, you know, that we just read of in chapter ten. But there remains work to be done. Um, there's still, you know, further. Uh, Canaanites to, to, to drive out. That's what Judges is kind of about. And they don't do so well <laughs> with regard to this final charge, let's say. But, um, right. you know, there is more work. To, so they've been delivered. They've been redeemed. They've been brought in. But in a sense, there's more to be done. Um, not in the sense that like, oh, the Lord's favor is not upon us. We have not been redeemed. Like, no, you have been redeemed from, you know, from Exodus. You've been redeemed into something. You're called to something now. And I think that's the logic um, of our own you know, sanctification. Um, we've been redeemed. We've been brought out, um, and we're on our way to the full possession. There remains work to be done, um, but that work is uh, not our own redemption, which has happened, but kind of entering into the fullness of all that's been promised. Um, but that's another theme that um, is mentioned here. It's just God's faithfulness to His promises. We have this beautiful description in verse uh, fourteen. <clears throat> 
And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. And, um, you know, that's always true, but I think at this time in the church year, um, we just see that being especially true when we have just seen the life of Christ, the death of Christ, resurrection, the sending of the Spirit, um, not one word has failed of all that he's promised. And so we can trust not one word will fail in the future, and we should go nowhere else but to him. Yeah. Well, very good. And again, that uh, brings us back to that theme and the collect, trusting God for his mercy. He will fight for us and protect us. And that's how we can follow him and please him. Um, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, you can hear that um, and say, okay, well, the way that we'll really prove and know we love God is, is by how well we do. But, of course, you can read it the other way. You say, well, um, we're trying to keep the commandments. We're, we're doing what we can out of our love because we love God, because we've been convinced and convicted by what he's done for us, um, because he first loved us. Uh, so we're trying to imitate him. And so the, the Trinity season is uh, our attempt at hearing God's word, seeing his saving work in Christ, and therefore, by the power of the Spirit, uh, following after him and doing likewise. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll, we'll close this episode. If you've enjoyed listening, please check us out again. We're going to try to do this week by week, uh, working through the lectionary. And as I mentioned, we do have older episodes that as I have time, I'm going to try to be uh, uploading as well so you can see where we have been earlier. Um, uh, my name, again, is Stephen Wedgworth, rector at Christ Church in South Bend, Indiana. My co-host has been Clayton Hutchins at Holy Cross Anglican, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, and this is the 1662 Proppers Podcast. Uh, until next time, God be with you and hope that uh, this has been helpful in enriching your studies and your worship.